Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus best that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the New Books Network. that seeks to bridge human divides and work toward healing is difficult. It is incredibly easy to silo ourselves, whether it's in our work, our neighborhoods, in our religious practices. I've seen firsthand in my own classrooms that dialogue between people of different religious practices can be remarkably fruitful and elicit growth in both sides. Some of my favorite memories in my classrooms over the years are when students with firmly held beliefs were buzzing with joy because they had a fantastic conversation in my room with a guest speaker who came from a totally different tradition. The light bulb in their heads were like, I can have meaningful conversations with anyone. And that's kind of what this episode is about to me. The guest on this episode is Jordan Denary Duffner. Denary Duffner is an author and scholar of Muslim Christian relations interreligious dialogue, and Islamophobia. Jordan is currently pursuing a PhD in theological and religious studies at Georgetown University. A former Fulbright scholar, she is also an associate at the Bridge Initiative, where she worked from 2014 to 2017 as a research fellow. Jordan's writing on Islam and Catholicism has appeared in numerous outlets, including Time, The Washington Post, and America. In this episode, we are discussing her newest book, Islamophobia, what Christians should know and do about anti-Muslim discrimination. And yes, we do talk about the purpose of selecting the audience as Christians specifically, but we also talk about how this book is useful to anyone. You can find Jordan on her website at jordandenary.com. 
and on Twitter at Jordan Denary. Thank you so much for listening. Jordan Denary Duffner, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you here, and I'm wondering if you can start off by introducing yourself a little bit to the audience so they know who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, again, I'm Jordan Denary Duffner. Uh, currently, I'm a PhD candidate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and um, I focus broadly on Muslim-Christian relations, both uh, social interactions and issues of religious bigotry, but also uh, theological topics. Um, my dissertation is offering a Catholic view of the Prophet Muhammad uh, and his significance for Muslims. So um, in addition to the work on Islamophobia, I'm also interested in religious pluralism and, and things like that. Um, a lot of my career has been spent at Georgetown in DC. I did my undergrad in our School of Foreign Service. Um, and then I worked for a few years at the Bridge Initiative, which is um, a research project dedicated to studying Islamophobia and educating the public about it. Um, so I spent a lot of time at, um, at academic institutions and, you know, um, uh, doing this uh, work in, in academia, but my real passion is really for um, public facing work and writing. And so um, I've written two books. Um, the first was called Finding Jesus Among Muslims. And that was about my own experience uh, as a Catholic of dialoguing with Muslims um, and then my more recent book is on Islamophobia, and it's written for um, a Christian audience specifically. Um, and I, I do work with journalists, and I've done some um, education work, both at the university level, but also giving talks and things like that. Um, but a lot of my work is directed at uh, my fellow Catholics and other Christians, because um, I think it's important that we uh, promote interreligious understanding um, and upend some of the anti-Muslim uh, prejudice that sometimes exists in, in those communities. Wonderful. I love the the interfaith sort of uh, commitment to the dialogue. That's one of the things that my my students in my high school classes have always been super curious about is like, like, are people talking to each other? What is the relationships like between different religious groups? How can that be better? Like, so it's a really super important topic and one that young people, in my experience, working with them in the classroom, that they care about a whole lot as well. Because like something that's so interesting about being a religious studies teacher in high school is that the students come in and they oftentimes have very deeply held convictions about what they see as important in the world, but they are insanely curious about what happens in other faith traditions and other religious communities and like what those practices are like. And they're just so curious, just inherently intrinsically curious. And they go into it not seeking to change their own minds, but to just expand their view so they can have cool conversations with people all over the world. So that's kind of like what I see is what you're doing too, is like you have this like, you've just taken what my students care about a little bit farther. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And for me, a lot of this started in high school. Um, I, uh, I was really interested in Islam and other religions in high school. And then when I went to college, I really got the opportunity to meet a lot of Muslims, uh, take classes on Islam and really spend time dialoguing with ordinary people. And, um, that experience of dialoguing with Muslims as a Catholic was super enriching to my Catholic faith. Um, I actually came into those conversations, not really sure I wanted to be Catholic anymore. And I was interested in exploring other religions, but perhaps counterintuitively, it was learning about Islam and seeing the beauty in another religious tradition that made me be like, hmm, I want to actually 
go back into my own tradition and mine it for what's good and beautiful and reconnect with um, this tradition that I've had a lot of questions about Um, even like, so I grew up in a, in a, uh, in a Catholic community, going to Catholic school. And I knew a lot about the faith, but I didn't have a lot of the answers to the why questions. And so I, I was really motivated to go back into Christianity and say, well, why do we say this about Jesus? Why do we believe this? Why do we do that? And, um, so the dialogue with, with Muslims was, um, really impactful in helping me to reappreciate and delve into Catholicism more. Wonderful. Okay. So I want to know about some of these turning points as well. You mentioned these high school, important interactions that you had. Uh, I'm wondering a little bit more about any important turning points in your life uh, that led you to this point of doing this work. I know you lived in Jordan for a while. I always welcome travel stories on this show, but like, what are some important moments that are like, this is what I'm pursuing. Mm. Here's a major turning point. Here's an important person. Like what are the zigs and zags in the story? Yeah. So I would say, you know, the positive experiences of dialogue were a huge turning point, both in, in high school, those initial encounters, and then really in college, um, the, the friendships I made with Muslims, but there were also some negative experiences along the path that motivated this trajectory too. Um, you know, I grew up, um, or I sort of came of age in the post nine, like the immediate post nine 11 period. I was in fifth grade when, when nine 11 happened. So I was in 12th grade. So like, okay, it was like a yeah. big deal for me. 17 boom. There it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's interesting now because the students I teach, most of them were born, um, after nine 11. And so that was a really interesting experience to speak to students who haven't, uh, didn't live through it, but are feeling the repercussions. But anyway, um, growing up in that period, I, I was, you know, Islam was always on my radar and I ended up being sort of, um, uh, interested in it as, as a, as a good or something that I realized was a positive in the lives of so many Muslims. But then in my own Catholic and Christian community, I realized that Islam was still this boogeyman and mm. that my, um, Catholic faith community held on to a lot of prejudice and stereotypes about Muslims, which, um, is, is, you know, is common throughout the U S and in a lot of, um, communities of faith or in, in non-religious communities, people just hold on to a lot of negative feelings towards Muslims because of the way, um, that Muslims were portrayed in the media. And the fact that most people still don't know Muslims at all or very well. Um, and there was a moment in high school when, um, that sort of, uh, led to, to this trajectory. in, in a lot of ways, um, I received an anti-Muslim chain email that had circulated through my Catholic parish community and had been sent around by a lot of, um, a lot of our family friends, people mm-hmm. who I knew were kind and loving people. And who had these really, uh, who, who had these stated values of love and hospitality and welcome. And then, but they weren't applying them to Muslims. We, yeah. we weren't able to see that our fear and hostility towards Muslims was, not con was not consonant with our, you know, Christian values of love of neighbor. And so for me, um, I, you know, I really wanted to help, um, remedy that disconnect and I always wanted to be a writer. And so I was like, well, this is some, this is sort of a tangible thing that I can do with my writing. And, and I was also interested in religion too. So this is sort of how it all, it all came together. Um, but I'll just say a little bit about my time in Jordan. Um, I did a typical like undergrad study abroad, trip uh, or semester in Jordan. And then I went back when I was um, uh, after, after undergrad to do a Fulbright uh, research grant in Jordan. Oh, cool. And, um, you know, so, I mean, on, you know, one aspect of that, that was really wonderful was getting to know Muslims there, but also to know the Catholic community there. Um, 
I ended up getting placed with a Catholic host family, which was not at all what I had expected when I moved to a Muslim majority country. But I loved actually getting to experience Catholicism in an Arabic speaking context and go to mass in Arabic and sort of live out my Catholicism in this um, new environment and this new sort of language and culture. Um, but then I, so I was also doing research while I was there on Muslim Christian relations. And I had, I learned that there were some um, Christian television channels from the United States um, that were actually um, kind of creating discord between Muslims and Christians in Jordan because they were disseminating some of the false stereotypes about Muslims um, that we that we have here and sort of sowing those in some of the Christian communities in Jordan. And so it was creating this, um, it was creating distrust between Christian and Muslim communities that didn't really exist there before. And so that's what my research was on in Jordan. Very cool. Well, You've got this new book out, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. Uh, so I want to dive into this book here. And so uh, how do you define Islamophobia right off the bat? Yeah, so you know, on its face, linguistically, the word Islamophobia would indicate fear of Islam. So mm -hmm. that's one way someone could define it. But I, I take a different approach in the book. Um, my definition is prejudice and discrimination that targets people based on their perceived association with Islam and Muslims. Now, what does that mean? Because it's kind of a mouthful too. I'm trying to get at a few different things. Um, first, I'm trying to include um, how people think and feel towards Muslims. So the attitudes that people have, the stereotypes they have, the prejudice, anti-Muslim ideology, those sorts of things. But I also am trying to include how people treat Muslims. So this could be like one-off instances of discrimination, um, uh, hate crimes, things like that, but also um, institutionalized discrimination or um, uh, sort of more structural uh, issues of, of anti-Muslim uh, bigotry. Um, Islamophobia uh, can be overt and, and blatant, but also subtle or not, not even conscious all the time. Uh, I talk a lot in the book about um, issues of implicit bias related to Islamophobia and again, some of these um, more structural issues of discrimination. Um, another component of the definition is um, the, the perception that, uh, or the, the some someone's perceived association with Islam, mm -hmm. because the targets of Islamophobia are not always Muslim. Right. Oftentimes, non-Muslims are perceived to be Muslim because of the way that they look, because of the way that they dress. Um, so people like. Um, South Asians or uh, other Arabs, people from a range of religious backgrounds or non-religious backgrounds end up being raced, quote unquote, as Muslim. They're perceived mm -hmm. to be Muslim because, you know, particularly in the West, we have this mental picture of what a Muslim looks like, um, even though Muslims are an incredibly diverse uh, community, uh, you know, racially. Yeah. Um, so those are some some aspects of, of the definition of Islamophobia. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's not a perfect word linguistically. Uh, there's been a, a lot of debates in, um, you know, among academics about whether or not, and activists actually, about whether or not this word is the right one. Some people um, propose other terms. Um, I think Islamophobia is the right one because we need a word for this phenomenon. Um, and this is the word that that's already out there that people know. And, um, you know, terms like anti-Semitism are also not linguistically perfect when we're talking about um, anti-Jewish discrimination, you know. So I think we have to to use a word, um, and even if uh, 
it's not perfect, you know, and sure. I think Islamophobia is that word right now. Gotcha. Well, you know, the audience of the book is very particular. So I was reading the title just a moment ago and the title, the subtitle is What Christians Should Know and Do. Tell me about the choice to specify a very certain audience as opposed to a like a broader audience that could that could encompass anyone. Why the why the narrowing down? Yeah. So, I mean, I hope that the book is accessible to people beyond the Christian community. But it is did... for sure. Yeah. I want to <laughs> clarify that it, it definitely is like I felt like it was for sure. I'm glad. I'm glad. And I, I hope that um, teachers could use it in, in classrooms with really diverse students. But but you're right. I, I wrote it specifically for um, a broadly Christian audience um, for a few reasons. Um, one, because I thought it was important that there was a book on Islamophobia that spoke specifically to the hesitations that some Christians have about Islam and Muslims. Um, because, you know, I think a lot of people are um, concerned um, about things like Islamophobia, but they still, um, th they need to, someone needs to be able to speak to um, the hesitations that they might have from, like with the language that they're familiar with. Um, that's mm -hmm. another important um, aspect of the book where I'm speaking as a Christian to other Christians. So I'm sort of diagnosing this problem of Islamophobia using our own religious language. Um, mm. You know, obviously we can say that as human being, you know, like, regardless of our religion, that like religious bigotry is wrong, just sort of on a human level. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that Islamophobia and other forms of religious bigotry go against our basic Christian values of, of love of neighbor. And, you know, I elaborate on this in other ways um, as well. And I mean, I think the third reason why I wrote the book specifically for Christians um, is because unfortunately we have been really involved in the Islamophobia that um, exists here in the U S especially and in other Western countries, um, Christian communities have contributed a lot to Islamophobia. Um, and because of that, I think we have a responsibility, a particular responsibility to learn about it and to work, to break it down. And, you know, I, I talk about in the book that, um, you know, Muslims shouldn't have to advocate for themselves alone on this. Um, you know, it's, it's the responsibility of the people that are doing the, that are often doing the harm to actually like end that harm. Mm. And so, um, you know, combating Islamophobia is, is something that we are called to it's, um, you know, Christians obviously aren't the only ones, uh, implicated in, in Islamophobia, but, um, I think we have a unique and important role to play in upending it. We'll definitely talk about some specific examples of that in a little bit uh, as well. I want to put a pin in that for a second because yeah. I want to definitely come back to that as we get a little bit more into the book. Um, you have these like really short bursts of chapters and like me personally, I don't know how you feel about this, but ever since like 2020 and 2021, like I have a, a struggle with my brain where I just cannot read as well as I used to. And I'm working on it little by little and it's, and it's coming back, but it's a skill that you rebuild. It is. And like, you've got these like short burst chapters that are just wonderfully explorable. And tell me a little bit about some of the choices you made to structure the book, to keep, uh, to keep readers interested and engaged and like learn something, even if they only have five minutes to read. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that because it was, um, it was an intentional choice. It's also just how my brain works. I think mm. I, I think in little, <laughs> I think in little puzzle pieces and then yeah. I sort of fit them together in, in, in two chapters. Um, whenever I'm writing, I always like print out all of my different ideas and then I literally, um, move them all around on the table and then tape them together into the order that I want to, um, end up writing them in the book, um, which is sort of 
uh, maybe bizarre, but it's, it's the way my brain works. Um, but I, I wanted to, um, I, 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 there are lots of smaller facets of this larger issue. And I wanted readers to be able to, uh, you know, go through the book and, and look at the things that they're uh, most interested in, or, I mean, also for, for teachers who are using this book to be able to, um, draw on the parts that are going to be most useful for them. So I, as you, as you saw, I use a lot of subtitles throughout the chapters. Mm -hmm. So like, if you want to go to the section on like, you know, um, one, one section, um, for example, is the, about the phrase, why don't Muslims condemn terrorism? So mm -hmm. if you're interested in that sort of, um, what I would consider sort of an Islamophobic question and how, like why that question comes up and then, um, what our proper response to a question like that is you can go straight to that section, um, and read it yourself or assign it to students or discuss it with friends, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, just to, to give kind of a, a super broad overview of the book, the first half, as you know, is all about the problem of Islamophobia. So I have yeah. different chapters outlining the problem and, trying to each chapter addresses what I think is going to be a misconception that readers are going to have. So, uh, one of the early chapters, for example, is, um, all about how Islamophobia is not a new phenomenon. You know, I think a lot of readers, um, first became aware of Islamophobia in like the Trump years during the lead up to his election and, and those sorts of things. But Islamophobia goes, you know, back to nine 11 and far you know, beyond that into history. So I talk about some of the historical roots. And then I talk about, uh, for example, how Islamophobia exists on both sides of the polit political spectrum. It's not just mm -hmm. a Republican issue or, or something like that. Um, so I, I kind of have these chapters that debunk what I think would be certain um, misconceptions that, that a reader might have. The second big section of the book, uh, looks at Islamophobia specifically in Christian communities, both contemporary issues, but then also, um, historical, uh, dynamics between Christians and Muslims. Um, and then the last section is, um, uh, looking at our Christian tradition and how it can actually, um, provide solutions to this problem of Islamophobia. So I draw on different uh, teachings and theological and moral resources um, in the Catholic tradition specifically uh, to talk about how we can draw on our religion to combat this discrimination that targets people of another faith. Um, so that's the overall arc of the book. Awesome. You know, and something that you do very well in the very beginning of the book, which I think would be particularly relevant to teachers specifically, is the way that you start off with this massive demographics exploration, basic facts, clarifying terms, demographics. And, you know, you report that the Muslim population in the U.S. is about 1% and is expected to rise to 2%. So are people surprised when you talk to them about this, like what a large percentage of public discourse is spent on a population, which is teeny tiny? across this country? What, what surprises have you run into in conversation with folks? Yeah, I, I think that is a surprise. Um, I think there was a survey done a few years ago asking people how big they thought the U.S. Muslim population was, and people thought it was like 20 or 30 percent or something Jeez, like that. Holy <laughs> cow. I, I mean, and what I mean, what those surveys often demonstrate also is that um, people think every demographic group is larger than it actually is. So if you were to add up all of the responses, people would, it would be like 500% or something, you know, people, people aren't thinking about the math when, when they offer these estimations, but people think that Muslims are a bigger chunk of, of the U S population than they are. Um, and 
you know, another thing that comes up a lot in, um, as like a surprise, uh, when I talk to Catholics specifically, um, are the similarities that Muslims have with us, um, in terms of the, like the figures that are important to us, um, in addition to some of the teachings, um, some Catholics might know that Mary, for example, is an important figure in Islam. Um, and when I talk about that, that's something that um, people are really interested in because Mary is so central for Catholics. And then to find out how important she is for Muslims um, is a great bridge builder. Um, but I also talk in the book at, at a certain point about how Mary has actually also been used to divide Catholics and Muslims in certain periods of history. So uh, even these, these holy figures that should draw us together sometimes get roped into our um, interreligious polemics. Um, and Mary gets sort of thrown back, you know, between the two communities in sort of a hateful way. Um, but yeah, I, I think another surprise that another thing that's surprising to my audience is that most Muslims in the world are not Arabic speaking mm -hmm. uh, and they don't live in the Middle East. As you know, the vast majority of uh, maybe not the vast majority, but a majority of the world's Muslims live in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, Malaysia, India, Pakistan. Um, and only then, like, do we get into Egypt and Nigeria and other um, other countries in the Middle East or in Africa. Um, and that just flies in the face of people's expectations, because we have this uh, this association between the Middle East and Arabic and Muslim, that if, mm -hmm. pe if people live in the Middle East, they're Muslim, which they're not always, and that all Muslims must be from the Middle East. And so I think one of the one of the th the helpful things in, in upending Islamophobia is just disassociating those, those things and helping people realize that Muslims are a really diverse, um, diverse community. Yeah. I want to return back to that important thing you said earlier about how Christians have contributed to this problem, because mm -hmm. this is an ugly truth that we have to dive into, right? And the intro of the book, you have a great passage that says, quote, the prejudice and discrimination that Muslims have faced, the way Christians have contributed to it, and the moral and faith-filled duty that Christians are called to play in upending Islamophobia, end quote. So the words contributed to strike me as essential here. There are plenty of like documented instances of pastors and ministers making false and unflattering claims, as you mentioned in the book, about Muslims, slights and offhanded comments and negative assumptions. And so I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit more specifically about how you see this line of how Christians have contributed to anti-Muslim discrimination and prejudice. And, you know, because we're, we're, we're turning the mirror right on on a particular group here yeah. a group that you know you're you're a part of and that you're writing about in the book so talk to me about like turning that mirror around a little bit yeah so as you say i think it's important that we are you know and now i'm speaking as as a catholic christian you know about my community i think it's really important that we are um honest about um, the harm that we sometimes have caused, even if it's un unintentional, you know, and this comes up with, with other issues of, of racism and bigotry where, um, you know, people don't feel like they're at fault for, for harm that people from another community have faced, but, you know, we are caught up in these webs of, um, of, of bigotry and racism that sometimes we can't extract ourselves out of. Um, and, you know, I think that's where, Christian language actually becomes really helpful um, to talk about Islamophobia as something sinful, for example. You know, we we realize in the Christian tradition that we aren't perfect, um, but that there is room for improvement and that God actually calls us out of 
um, these, these webs of sin, you know, I don't think, um, uh, you know, there are certainly Christians who, um, intentionally, um, are, are, are promoting Islamophobia in a very self-conscious way, but I think right. most of us are, um, are not, you know, and, and like, I think back on my own, uh, Catholic community and, and the folks that were sending around this email when I was a younger person, no one was intending harm there, but it was happening, you know? Yeah. And so, um, and so I think it's, it's important that we, that we name these harms. And so one of the things that I do in the book is to give examples of, of some of the ways that, uh, Christian communities have, have, uh, been purveyors of Islamophobia. And, and I want to say that we, we aren't the only people who have an Islamophobia problem. Sure. Um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, atheists or Buddhists or Jews or Hindus, I mean, lots of different communities, um, you know, have issues with Islamophobia. And, and of course, Muslims have their own um, uh, challenges with, with bigotry in their, in their community towards, towards other groups. You know, this is a human problem where we 100%. scapegoat other communities, whether religious, racial, cultural, national. Um, but I, I think that it's, um, you know, particularly in the West, um, the history of Christian Muslim relations has sort of led to some of the Islamophobia that we see. And a lot of the globalized Islamophobia that exists today has been informed um, and shaped particularly by like the Euro-American experience and the Euro-American stereotypes and issues. So we have a special role to play um, in upending Islamophobia. And, you know, I'll, I'll just say to give some examples from, from the book about uh, the kinds of contemporary things I'm talking about. Um, I talk a little bit about issues in the evangelical Christian community. Um, this has been well-documented by other, other writers. So I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but you have a lot of, um, uh, Protestant Christian, uh, leaders, particularly sort of in the like religious right movements who, um, uh, who have been intimately sort of intertwined with the Islamophobia industry. So, hmm. um, you know, these, uh, bloggers and, and pundits and writers who, um, sort of make a living off of demonizing Muslims and have really been given a platform in evangelical circles. Um, but unfortunately the same thing has also happened in Catholic communities. And that's one of the, I think, uh, new things that I talk about in the book. I draw a lot of attention to the ways that the Islamophobia industry has actually gained a foothold in Catholic, uh, circles nowadays. And I give a number of examples of that. Um, so it's, it's important that Catholics know these things though, because, when Catholics go, you know, when they want to read a book about Islam, they go to their local Catholic bookstore and they find a book by, you know, a preeminent anti-Muslim writer that that bookstore is carrying. And mm -hmm. they don't realize that they're actually being fed misinformation. And so drawing attention to all of that uh, is really crucial because only when we have an understanding of the problem, can we hope to, you know, be a part of the solution, I think. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You know, and something that I also found very interesting in the book is the way that you mentioned that it's perpetuated by both the political right and the political left, which I think is worth examining. Do you have any like thoughts that you'd like to say more on that? Because I found that to be uh, intriguing and interesting. Yeah. And I, I speak at length about this in the book. Um, you know, we can just talk a little bit about it here, but yeah, you know, it's, we all know that, you know, particularly during the, the 2016 election campaign and during the presidency of Donald Trump, um, anti-Muslim rhetoric was a, a main feature of, of Republican GOP discourse and, and policy. Um, and that even members of this sort of, or not members, but, uh, players in this Islamophobia industry were becoming, um, government officials or people that government officials would go to for advice. Um, so that's very, that's a very obvious way that, um, Islamophobia exists on the political right, but it exists on the left too, just in subtle, more subtle ways. And I give a lot of examples in the book, um, democratic politicians from Bill and Hillary Clinton to even Barack Obama at times would, um, not so much in rhetoric, but in policy contribute to the harm of, of Muslims. Um, I talk about other policies that, uh, you know, were ongoing during democratic administrations, like the CVE program, uh, countering violent extremism, which basically, um, uh, encouraged community members, um, to report, individuals to law enforcement if they were concerned about a threat of violence or terrorism. And these programs were primarily targeted at Muslim communities in the United States. Um, You know, I I also think that some of the anti-Muslim stereotypes that that exist are still really held among liberals. Um, Even people who might be nominally against Islamophobia or who might have been um, uh, vocal about uh, you know, the, the Muslim ban under president Trump, they, they would have thought those things were wrong, but then they still hold on to some of the stereotypes about Muslims, like the idea that Muslim men are oppressive to women or, um, those sorts of things. I mean, I, as I say in the book, some of the most Islamophobic comments I've ever heard out of the mouths of people have been from, like your sort of stereotypical, like coastal elite liberals, you know, like your New York times reading, you know, or like California living, you know, I don't know. So, um, I I think it's important that liberals in particular are, um, 
self-reflective uh, mm-hmm. about these things. And, and I think a lot of the readers of my book are going to be people who are, you know, well-intentioned and probably identify on more of that side of the political spectrum. And it's important that we, um, that we don't think that we're, you know, so much better than the right, because we were against Trump. It's like, no, you actually hold on to some of these things too. Yeah. And there's a lot of nimbyism as well, too. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of uh, I I see a lot of people. I I live in a fairly well to do suburb in Buffalo, and I see a lot of very perfect yard signs. But I I think that that's as far as the actions go. Putting a sign in a yard isn't like particularly making an all white, super high property tax enclave a particularly better place because it's still extremely exclusive and exclusionary and access to the club is extremely hard. So there's definitely, there's definitely issues there. So I'm glad that you were willing to chat about that because it, it's a fascinating topic for sure. Yeah. Um, talk to me about some of your observations of uh, masjid vandalization mm-hmm. in the U S I'm curious about some of these examples that stick out to you. Yeah. So, and for, for listeners who, who don't know, um, masjid is just the Arabic word for mosque, um, a place of prostration. So, um, yeah, I talk a lot in the book about vandalisms at mosques, um, in the United States, which have, uh, been happening very frequently since September 11th, you know, 20 plus years ago. Um, and they don't really make the news that often anymore, but they still do happen. And unfortunately they often happen around, um, Muslim holy days. Mm. Um, one of the, um, unintentional side effects, I think of increased coverage, media coverage of Muslims during their holy seasons is that it actually draws attention to these communities. And then people who, um, you know, are, uh, you know, people who have uh, negative feelings towards Muslims and are violent and hateful will go and attack these, attack these mosques. Um, so we have things like, arson and vandalism. And, um, you know, I also talk about cases where like local anti-Muslim groups have gone to mosques pretending that they're interested to come for like a field trip and to learn. And then they will, um, sort of harass the, um, you know, the, the leaders of the mosque and things like that. Um, and it's just, it, it's just very sad. You know, I mean, so many religious communities face these sorts of things in different periods and, um, you know, and it's, it's tragic whenever, um, it happens. Um, I've also been really heartened though. And I talk about these stories in the book where Christians and others will help clean up afterwards. Um, I, I open the book with an anecdote of, uh, of, uh, uh, anti-Muslim vandalism at a mosque and someone sprayed crosses all over the mosque and, and other, um, other hateful, like, like hateful words, like Muslims go home and things like that. Um, so it was, the act was perpetrated by a Christian, but then the local Christian community, like within a few hours came and helped remove the graffiti from the mosque and those sorts of things. And so it just goes to show how, um, there's a lot of harm that's being committed, but also, people are stepping up, uh, and I think increasingly so. And, um, that's really hopeful too. Yeah. You know, and you make, you bring up an interesting point there because discrimination against groups is particularly pointed and harmful against a particular group. Right. Yeah. But it also harms 
everybody. Mm-hmm. Like when when a group is targeted and discriminated against, it harms everybody. First of all, certain groups are attacked and isolated and unsafe, right? And then the other group are consumed with you know tiny weak human hatreds. Mm-hmm. That's not a pathway to happiness either, yeah. right? So there's like this consumption of hatred, and then there is the, uh, and then there is the the act of like feeling unsafe and mm-hmm. and being victimized by other people who are targeting you because of certain characteristics, whatever they may be. So everybody is harmed. Like humanity is like collectively harmed in these acts of discrimination. I think. Yeah, and I love how you put that, and and I use that that Turner phrase. Um, sort of in the book, I say, you know, Islamophobia obviously harms Muslims, but it also harms us as Christians, because when we are not in right relationship with other human beings, when we are vandalizing their houses of worship, when we are harboring these hatreds, when we are um, feeling suspicious and uh, negative towards other people, that actually harms our relationship with God too, because, you know, we as Christians talk about, and I think, you know, virtually every religious community would that our relationships with other people and with the world, um, are not unrelated to our relationship with God. Um, the Mm. way we live in the world says a lot about what our relationship with God is like. And Pope Francis talks about this all the time. He says, if we are, um, if we are out of right relationship with our fellow human beings, our own humanity is, um, kind of in a precarious situation. And, um, it means that our relationship with God is, is not what we think it is. Like we might think that we're, we're, um, you know, maybe we go to church a lot. Maybe we pray a lot. Maybe we, um, do all these other things that are on the face of it religious, but if we're not treating other people well, then, um, we're not doing it right. You know, and an interesting thing about this for me, just as somebody who does this show is that I don't do a lot of episodes on this show that have like a theological orientation. Mm-hmm. It's usually like, you know, just professors in like in academic departments talking about like their their books on Harvard University Press. So yeah. this is kind of a different <laughs> slant for me. So this is really interesting to hear the personal story of someone committed to doing interfaith work to make all communities stronger. Like this is... um. This is this is very refreshing for me. I, I'm love. I'm having a great time. Um, so you know, I am curious about you know that you have a section in the book called "Why Me," mm-hmm. right? Talk to me about that section because uh, I think it's super important to say to listeners like like why me? Like mm-hmm. why am I doing this particular work as a representative of my community, reaching out to other communities? Like why you? And you know, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's sort of a debate in, in the, um, in the world of interfaith advocacy and stuff, who should be doing, um, who should be doing this work? Should it be people from the affected community or should it be people from outside the community who want to help? And there are really compelling arguments on both sides. And I think, um, I think it's sort of a both and approach we need, um, you know, you know, we need to constantly be, um, lifting up Muslim voices and centering Muslim voices. And, you know, I have learned what I have learned from Muslims, you know, so much of, of the book is informed by Muslim experience, by Muslim expertise. Um, and that's super important at the same time, I'm afraid that my Catholic faith community, um, 
needs to hear it from someone that comes from that community. Um, some, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people in my faith community, whether they admit it or not, are not going to be as willing to listen to somebody who's Muslim when it comes to these sorts of things. And honestly, a lot of my Muslim friends have told me, you know, I don't necessarily want to go into your church and beg the people to see me as human. That's your job, you know? And, And I'm like, yeah, it is my job. Like, you don't have to, you shouldn't have to do that. That's my responsibility. Um, so it takes, it takes guts too for you to do that. I mean, it's, it really does. Uh, well, and it's, it's, it's not always fun. And I have been called a traitor to my own religion more times I can't than I even, can count. I can't imagine how unfun it actually is. There are times where it is not fun and, you know, it's, it's been straight up scary at times because, um, people, Catholics in the Islamophobia industry have gone after me specifically and, you know, drug my family into it and stuff like that. And that's not, um, that it, it just straight up scary sometimes, but you know, um, it, it also, that all those things also pale in comparison to the experiences of prejudice and discrimination that my Muslim friends face. I mean, I don't walk around being scared that someone is going to attack me because of the way I look, or right. I don't worry about being in church and someone coming and shooting it up during the Christmas Eve mass or something like that, you know, um, even though increasingly these things are happening. Oh yeah. Like no one is safe. Um, Right. I, you know, um, so, you know, uh, you know, beside that, but, um, yeah, I, I also just feel like it's a personal calling. Um, I, you know, I have had these experiences that, um, you know, just have led me to feel like this is the particular contribution that I can make. And, you know, I come from a, uh, I'm, I'm a Jesuit educated Catholic. Um, and the Jesu- Jesuits are an order of priests founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola in the 1500s. And one of the sort of hallmarks of this community is, um, that we have to discover our vocation. And by that, it's not just becoming a priest or a nun or a married person. Um, but, you know, what is God calling me to? And there's this idea that God's desires for you and your own talents and desires and wishes like can be in alignment and whatever, where those things are in concert, that's sort of what our role in in our individual vocation is. And so for me, this is that. And for other Catholics, it's other things, you know, I have, you know, I have friends who do immigration work and work on the environment. My husband is a public defender, very much um, feeling called, uh, to do that work for, um, uh, for people who are, uh, you know, accused of, of committing crimes and need fair representation. And so, um, that's, you know, that's sort of the answer to the why me. One of the most fantastic professions in this country, the public defenders, uh, extremely, extremely undervalued, constitutionally necessary, uh, a wonderful group of extremely underpaid and overworked people (laughs) who deserve so much more attention and care and respect than than they actually get. So I am massively pro public defender. And I just wanted to say that real quick, because I think it's an awesome career. Thank you. And I'll say that the, you know, as people, if people read the book, um, they'll know from the first pages that I I talk about it, because that's my, my husband's job. And I feel like there actually is a lot that we have in common in, in our professions, because people will ask him, why do you defend those people? Which Mm -hmm. is sort of a question that I get too. Sometimes you're Christian. Why are you defending those Muslim terrorists? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same sort of, um, skepticism, um, that, that, um, people have towards, 
towards both of these demonized communities. So, yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, running some of the stories in the book past Muslims. I'm curious yeah. about the, like any like dialogue or reviewing or anything mm-hmm. like that to make sure that the book was like as good as you could possibly get it being an outsider to that community. Yeah, that was super important. Um, and it's something that I've, uh, I, you know, implemented with both of my books. Um, I had Muslim colleagues and friends, uh, read different sections of the book, depending on their expertise and those sorts of things. Um, so that was really helpful. And, and sometimes they would come back with like pretty big suggestions or edits, or, you know, you're missing this, or what about this part? Um, that kind of thing. Also, as you know, the book has a lot of, of anecdotes and personal experiences that I recount of of pretty traumatic things that people have gone through. Um, you know, some of those things are just publicly, um, available in like news media. Um, but a lot of them were like personal stories that friends actually shared with me. So I, you know, I wrote up a draft. I would then send them the draft. What do you think? Um, you know, recognizing that this is, this is, this isn't easy to talk about Mm. these things. It's really important. Um, you know, and that's why I did recount a lot of these really kind of negative stories in the book, because I think it's important that my community is aware of, of, of the harm that's being committed, but, um, it's not easy. And actually, you know, I, I realized that if this book is used in, in courses, that a lot of this material can be really, um, kind of triggering for a lot of people, regardless of whether or not you're Muslim. I mean, reading story after story of, of hate crimes and things is not, does not make for good reading. And so I do, um, you know, I have a section at the beginning of the book where I sort of warn readers about that. And, um, you know, I, I always encourage like other educators to like, let your students like skip parts if they want, because it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not fun, uh, to, to read about these things in many cases. And there's a lot of trauma in the world all of the time, mm-hmm. right? Anybody with the internet is constantly being exposed to new atrocities occurring yeah. either down the street or on the other side of the world. Like yeah. it's just the way that our society is now. Um, so that's a really good point. You know, one of the things that I, I like so much about your work is that as a person with a particular religious practice, a committed religious practice, Mm -hmm. you are nonetheless committed to learning about other traditions, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about why in general you think that learning about other religions is important regardless of one's own spiritual practice. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking a lot about my students, uh, from the class that I taught last semester. Um, and answering this question because I was teaching a, an intro to Islam class at Georgetown and I had 28 students from all these different backgrounds. And, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of them came in with really different reasons, um, for taking the course, but I think, you know, first and foremost, it's important to learn about other religions because, um, it helps us to better understand our fellow human beings. Um, and, how people make sense of the world and our place in it. And, and one of the things that I think is really fun about studying religion is you realize that all of us are kind of trying to do the same thing. We're trying to, to make our way through the world to, to live with joy and hope and optimism and how we, you know, make sense of the things that are hard and religions allow people to do this. Um, you know, I also, um, one of the things that I think is, is, is important when teaching about religion is, um, 
drawing attention to the fact that religion as a category is, is sort of a modern, uh, a modern construct that for a long time, um, you know, uh, the human family did not, uh, categorize, um, religion as something separate from the rest of their life. There wasn't this idea of like the religious and the secular. This is something that came out of the enlightenment, like before people just lived and religion, um, wasn't its own thing. It was just, uh, it, it seeped into the rest of their life. And so, um, you know, and I think it's important for, for students to understand that today, that even if they don't identify as religious, like religion, um, you know, impacts all of us. And even if you're not, um, you know, like a practicing Christian, for example, you're trying to sort of make your way through the world, um, in ways that might not be too different from someone who's Christian. You might have different language that you use to talk about how you, um, uh, think about the world and your place in it, but we're all trying to do the same thing. You know, I would say as, as a, from, for me specifically as someone who, um, you know, tries to have a relationship with God or tries to like make a home in a religious community, I find learning about other religions really impactful and important because I do learn something about God from, from that exploration and that journey. Um, I don't think that Catholicism or Christianity has the monopoly on, on, uh, wisdom or truth. Um, we have our own particular way of talking about it. And, uh, we have a system for sort of making sense of the world, um, with reference to, to, to Jesus. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can't, that God isn't working in, in other religious communities. And I have learned a lot about God from, from Muslims. And so for me, um, as someone situated in the Catholic church, um, there's still a lot of value in going beyond that to, um, to learn. I love it. Well, uh, Jordan, what's, what's next for you? What are you working on? I'm working on my dissertation. Yay. I have, I am not allowed to, <laughs> to write any other books before I finish my dissertation. Um, love it. uh, so, um, but I, I'm still, um, you know, active in, in the public space and doing talks and, and writing smaller things here and there. Um, and, uh, so yeah, people can look for, for articles and, and things like that, that'll be coming out in the next while. Is there a place where people can connect with you online if they want to get in touch or follow along? Absolutely. I'm on Twitter, um, and Facebook and Instagram. Um, I also have a, a personal website that people can easily find through Google and I'll, I'm probably going to be launching, um, a Substack newsletter, uh, at some point in the future. And then my two books, which are easily Googleable also. Perfect. Well, Jordan Denary Duffner, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure today. Yeah, it's been great, Greg. Thank you. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.